Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 8th of January, 2022, and uh, we're staying in the letter alphabet organization of these regulatory lectures. And so we just spent, I think, six lectures on the appetitive reward pathway. I think we covered a fair amount of ground, kind of laid the groundwork for some decent neuroscience we'll do in the future. Uh, but right now I'm going on and moving to another new topic. And this topic is going to be termed avirulence. And that what that means and how it works out with um, my descriptions, both of pathobiochemistry and particularly of the disease phenomena associated with periodontitis, um, that, that is periodontal inflammation and caries or cariogenic bacteria in, um, in dental pathophysiology. And so avirulence can be described in that system, but of course, can be described much broader when you're talking about pathogens, parasites. Uh, in particular, it was first described back about um, a discussion of fungi and then bacteria, but it's also been linked to uh, viruses. So that's where we are, and we will get right to it. All right, so I hope you like this lecture. I spent some time trying to put it together, and it goes back to some of my very early work, actually, as a scientist. So um, it was fun, in fact, as a graduate student. So let me explain something for background here. There's going to be a few lectures, so we might as well develop background, because that's what we do. There was a, a hypothesis developed in the 1940s by a plant pathologist named Harold Floor, F-L-O-R, and he came up with something called the gene-for-gene gene hypothesis. And it was based really on the work he was doing in a rust fungus called Melamsora lini, and Melamsora lini is a pathogen of the flax plant. That's right. That's where you get flaxseed oil uh, and other fast-drying oils, which, of course, are very important in industry. So he was looking at the flax per, uh, fungus, uh, Melanospora, and he would describe this gene-for-gene gene hypothesis around this pathogenic state. And his he claimed that for every dominant avirulence gene in the pathogen, there is a cognate resistance gene in the host. And at the interaction, so it'd be AVRR, that would be the axis of interaction. The gene products for those genes would result in the activation of a host defense response uh, which was described in that plant model as a hypersensitive response. And that would cause localized program cell death and therefore halt the ingress of the invading pathogen, in this case, fungus. Now, virulence is the degree of pathogenicity within a group or species of bacteria or parasites or viruses. And you can indicate virulence by case fatality rates and or the ability of the organism to invade the tissue of the host. Depends on what the outcome is you want to measure. Now, the ability of microbe 
or a virus to cause disease is described in terms of the number of infecting agents, so viriads and viruses, or cells and bacteria, or sometimes spores and fungi, and there are various routes for parasites, but the route of entry into the body is important. The number of the infecting agents is important. And of course, the effect of the host defense mechanism, which involves intrinsic characteristics of both the, mic uh, the microbe of the virus and those virulence factors. So an optimum virulence increases with horizontal transmission. That means between non-relatives within a species. And it will decrease, that is optimal virulence, with vertical transmission. That means from parent to offspring. Okay? So the pathogen population will evolve in one of those two uh, processes, once it encounters its host. Now, there are three main hypotheses about how the pathogen will evolve and whether or not it becomes virulent or avirulent early on during the transmission process through multiple lineages of the species or finally. And those three hypotheses are trade-off short-sighted evolution, and coincidental evolution. So recall that virulence is the degree of pathogenicity within a group or species of potential pathogens. And again, it's indicated by fatality rate, the ability of the organism to invade, and then, of course, these virulence factors. And so virulence is the degree of pathogenicity within a group or species of parasites, okay? And that is indicated again by case fatality rates or the ability of the organism to invade. And so the pathogenicity of the invading organism is actually indicative of its ability to cause disease. So this would be symptomology, right? Or presentation of disease. And this, of course, is going to involve in humans the immune response, both acquired and innate. And all of that, again, can be described under a topic of virulence factors. So in an ecological context, virulence can be defined as the host's parasite-induced or pathogen-induced loss of fitness. Therefore, virulence can be explained in terms of approximate cause. Those are specific traits of the pathogen that help make it cause the host to become ill, right? And so you have ultimate causes, such as the evolutionary pressure that led to the virulent traits in the pathogen. And that will all be then genetic and evolutionary processes laid on the pathogen or the strain of the pathogen. So the ability of a microorganism to cause disease can be described in terms of that number of infective agents, as I said. Host-mediated pathogenesis is important because the host will respond aggressively to infection because of survival. And you'll get a, the result could be the host defense mechanism will damage the host tissues, but will repulse the infection. Now, according to evolutionary processes in biomedicine, 
optimum virulence increases again with horizontal transmission. This is very important. This is how we come up with things like herd immunity. But it decreases with vertical transmission. Optimal virulence decreases with vertical transmission. And why is that? It's because the fitness of the host is bound to the fitness in vertical transmission, but it is not bound in horizontal transmission, right? Because this is where you individuate resistance. So the pathogen population could evolve once it's in the host. And we know this uh, in terms of pathogenesis. We know that this um, mutation can also involve epistasis, that is gene-gene interaction, epimutation, that is the mutation upon an initial mutation, and then, of course, epigenetics, which is completely overriding that circuitry and directly relates environment to gene expression and not necessarily to gene sequence, say. So how do we get all this uh, organized? Well, as I said a few moments ago, there have been three main hypotheses that talk about pathogenic evolution. And the three hypotheses are used to explain life strategies, virulence strategies of potential pathogens. And that would, of course, have to include a discussion of their reproduction, migration, and then again, direct virulence or decreasing fitness in the host by generating illness, right? There's a trade-off hypothesis. It says that pathogens tend to evolve toward a decreasing virulence, that is, they move towards a virulence. Remember, Flores gene for gene hypothesis. And that argument is suggests that, that that mechanism occurs because the death of the host, or even if it's severely debilitated, will be harmful to pathogen living and multiplying within the host. For example, if the host dies, the pathogen population inside will very likely die as well. Therefore, the less virulent pathogen would be, would be allowed by the host, at least at some efficient rate, to be able to move within the host in various tissues and interact. Once that happens, once the initial infection occurs, that individual host could well be interacting with other potential hosts in a community, say, of people living in a village, right? And so the lack of severe virulence would aid in pathogenic transmission and survival because it would be more of a success for it to reproduce because of multiple hosts with variable and modifiable, for the reasons I just said, Right, mutation rate, epimutation, epistasis, and epigenetics. Those are those are some very important canonical features of a pathogenic um, interaction. And so th- that success rate of reproducing is going to have to overcome the individual potency of all of those factors. That's the point. 
And so if you can move through a population without causing severe illness, you're going to increase the fitness of the pathogen. Okay. That's a trade-off hypothesis. That's what it means. So pathogen strains that kill the host would increase in frequency as long as the pathogen can transmit quick enough to get to another host, right? And that means that the, the, the more rapid the virulence generates into illness in the host, uh, the less chance the pathogen has to either completely carry out its reproductive cycle at a sufficient titer to cause new infection, right? And or pick up any possible positive mutations along the way that could help it resist any a virulence gene for gene interactions that could occur in any new subsequent host. Okay. So the evolution of virulence and pathogens then in this hypothesis would be a balance between the cost benefit ratio, right? Whether or not it's going to have virulence or relative a virulence in association with the host. Second hypothesis is short-sighted evolution. And what it uh, purports is that the traits that increase reproductive rate and transmission of the, of the pathogen to the new host will rise in high frequency within the pathogen population. Okay, increase in reproductive rate, which of course could be linked to transmission. So there are actually two mechanisms to think about. Now the traits include the ability to reproduce sooner, faster, sooner means less actual clock time within the host or cell cycle phase, if you like. And faster would mean how rapid can the pathogen increase the number to generate a population which would carry out an infection. That's why faster is important. And that's linked directly to reproduction in higher numbers. Now, there are other factors to consider. The pathogen needs to live longer, and it has to survive the vagaries of inflammation and potentially immune response, such as antibodies. Or the pathogen has to mobilize and survive in some part of the body where the pathogen does not generate an immune response. So these traits I'm talking about would arise, of course, because of mutation, which would occur more frequently in pathogen populations, of course, than in host populations. Now, there are genes which are hypermutable and hypervariable, both in the host and in the pathogen. So this is there's the clear distinction isn't always there. And this is, of course, avoiding the discussion of epigenetic modification. Epigenetic modification simply means that gene expression is altered at the tissue-based level. So you alter gene expression, you're not changing the genetic profile, but you're tremendously affecting the infection court, or if you're the pathogen, the chance for virulence or avirulence to lead to reproductive fitness to become infectious. Okay. So only after a few generations, if you pick up mutations as a pathogen, 
the mutations that enhance rapid reproduction or dispersal will presumably increase in frequency because of selection. The same mutations that enhance the reproductive rate and maybe the dispersal and then infection rate of the pathogen also, of course, would be directly linked to its virulence, making the host ill. Because you're going to be able to multiply rapidly, generate the next generation of individual agents that can be transmitted and then affect an infection process to get through the initial barriers, such as skin or mucous membranes, and then to cause new infection sufficiently to enhance the survivability and then the procurement of reproducibility to go to the next host. All of that presumably will maintain the mutations that elevated that rate of transmission and that, and that speed of reproduction that we just talked about. But all of this is going to increasingly cause harm that is illness to the host. Now, the host isn't, isn't a non-participant in the disease state, right? The host has the immune response. And the immune response itself can become hypermutable just in terms of T cell receptors and B cell receptors, right? And the antibody production, for example, in plasma cells. That's just one simple way. But also, what else do you have? You have this potential for the host to carry out um, nonlinear, but yet cogent to virulence mutations. Because if, it's, if the cells survive because of a mutation, they will survive because of the mutation. And then because of that, those cells will multiply in the host as well. If those cells are immune cells, there you go, with an alteration of the immune response, either controlling hyperinflammatory or enhancing hypoinflammatory states, depending on the transmission rate, the efficacy, and the reproductive efficiency of the pathogen. Okay, so there's multiple issues you have to keep in mind here. So, same mutations that enhance reproduction and dispersal of the pathogen will enhance virulence in the host, but that causes disease and also death. So, if the pathogen's virulence kills the host outright and interferes with its own transmission to a new host, that kind of virulence, whatever those mutations were, would be selected against. As long as transmission continues, though, at some rate, despite whatever enhancement of virulence may have occurred, virulent pathogens still may take an advantage in at least the infection court. Now, the third hypothesis about all this system of virulence is what's known as coincidental evolution hypothesis. There's always a third, right? And what it suggests or argues is that some forms of virulence can't co-evolve with the host. Now, why would that be? Because the genes responsible for, let's say, oh, let's say it's an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase in a virus that has to have 
uh, an enzyme that will carry out the, its own manufacture of RNA, such as single-stranded RNA viruses, some of which you may have uh, recently heard about and not even be aware of. Um, but also those same viruses could have proofreading capability, which would decrease the potential for a mutation during every reproductive cycle of the pathogen. Okay? <laughs> so... Here you've got coincident evolution going on, even within the pathogen. So let's take a look at bacteria that causes tetanus. So tetanus is caused by actually Clostridium tetani, which is usually just found in the soil. It's a soil bacterium. And after Clostridium tetani enter a wound, the bacteria grow and divide rapidly. And, and even in the human body, which is not their normal habitat because they're living cells, they could rapidly divide and therefore cause severe illness. So the C. tetani produce something called, something called a neurotoxin that is directly lethal to humans. But it is selection in the bacterium's normal life cycle in the soil that leads to the toxin production. And that may not have any evolutionary pressure once the bacterium is transferred errantly, non-specifically, episodically to a host wound. So in this case, the bacteria is inside a new host instead of being in the soil and there's no evolutionary pressure or no temporal or spatiotemporal sequence leading to an alteration of mutation an alteration of epistasis, of epimutation or of epigenetic phenomena. So in that case, the neurotoxin is not directed towards the human host, yet will kill it. So what do you think would happen there? There, the evolution of the production of the neurotoxin may not benefit the clostridium because it kills the host too quickly. So once it's in the host, selection pressure may eventually procure a clostridium tetany that produces less of the neurotoxin, right? Now, again, when you think about this, don't, don't ever think that I am being anthropomorphic. Bacteria, fungi, um, multicellular parasites, and viruses, they're not capable of carrying out cognition, contemplation, understanding, imagination. They don't have that kind of neural network we were just talking about in the last six lectures. So the only thing that's going on is brute force survival, which of course involves the whole hypothesis and evolution about survival of the fittest. But we know that the hypothesis has so many caveats, it really should not be stated except as first principle. And the caveats are associated because of the fact that what we're not describing each time we come into a new discussion of pathogenesis is what comprises fitness. This fitness comprises the survival of the pathogen even though very low transmission rate. The pathogen has no telos that is directed to intentionality 
the pathogen either will or will not maintain itself in the infection court or in the infection environment based on its survivability with all the multiple factors of virulence and avirulence impacting multiple potential environments, including the non-selection of a host, such as a wound in a human or an animal. So these are variables which are outside the purview of direct selection on gene expression and mutation. And that's why simple Darwinian evolution does not explain cell-cell interaction or organismal interaction in terms of its environment. It can't because all of the pressures and all the suggested mechanisms we've just talked about these last 10, 15 minutes are often contrary and sometimes contradictory. So the pathogen, the, the protopathogen, the potential pathogen will be selected against or for depending on what strategies were chosen during the process of transmission or reproduction or infectivity or um, an ability to avoid the immune system. These are all totally different mechanisms, although of course they're interactive and associated. And there could be biochemical phenomenon that cross over all those axes, but for different functions. What is really being evolutionarily strained? Is it structure or function? See, this is a key feature that I used to talk about in uh, biochemical evolution, something hopefully we'll do. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll do a whole topic on that sometime. Right now, I'm just going to introduce it to you. Okay. All right, so let's move on. Now, <clears throat> Paper published very recently in Frontiers in Microbiology, I want to bring to your uh, attention. Okay. And it talks about a specific bacteria, Streptococci. Now, I want to check my time here and see where I'm at. Yeah, I've only got about three minutes. So I got to make this uh, quick. So, Streptococci are a genus of gram positive bacteria that will colonize humans and other animals. And it's a dominant species in the host oral cavity, but also because of its anatomical association, the upper respiratory tract. So in the URT and in the OC, oral cavity and upper respiratory tract. Okay. So you get a lot of streptococcus there. So all those virulence factors or avirulence factors that we we're just now introducing will be at play here in two different systems, respiratory tract versus the oral cavity. And yet it's one organism, it's streptococci. Okay. Now, most streptococci are actually not pathogenic. So they live commensally or they live in a benign relationship with their host. But there's a problem. Several of them are pathogenic. Some strains are. So you have Streptococcus pneumoniae, which causes pneumonia. Streptococcus, Streptococcus pyrogenes, which is also known as Group A Streptococcus or GAS, G-A-S. Then there's Streptococcus agalactiae, also known as Group B Streptococcus or GBS. So you've got G-A-S, G-B-S. 
two different types of streptococci, right? And you also get streptococcus mutans, streptococcus gordonii, streptococcus sanguinus, streptococcus suius, all of which, all of the different species of streptococcus may cause infectious disease. What kinds? Well, dental caries is one, but also pneumonia, septicemia, scarlet fever, meningitis, toxic shock syndrome, protophilic endocarditis, and indeed the streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. So these pathogenic streptococcal species are responsible for a substantial amount of morbidity and mortality in humans, in human health. And the, and the morbidity associated just with carry, the carriage of that streptococci, if they indeed become pathogenic. So obviously the streptococci have evolved multiple mechanisms at the level of gene expression, but also at the potential for gene evolution or gene expression alteration while they're in the host and during the infectious process, as well as in when they're not in the host in whatever system they live in free living space. Remember, bacteria are free living organisms, right? So hopefully you found this discussion stimulating because we started off talking about what? Plant pathology. Uh, it's interesting how much plant pathology and plant biochemistry has uh, informed animal pathology and animal biochemistry and animal genetics. I know this because I come originally from a plant background. So we're going to continue this. I hope this is fun for you. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Clinic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA, the 8th of January, 2022, saying goodbye or just simply bye for now. <laughs>